Hello, I'm Adam, and welcome to Tales from the Potting Bench, a gardening podcast where you'll hear tales and stories from the most interesting and different people from the world of both indoor and outdoor gardening. We're well into the fifth season of the podcast with new guests and brand new stories and conversations with some people that you will definitely know and some people that you'll come to know through these episodes. As always, I'm thrilled to say that this podcast is proudly sponsored by the wonderful people at PlantGrow, producers of award-winning organic compost, mulch and fertiliser made with zero chemicals. Great for your garden and even greater for the planet. And I know because it's all I use on my garden. And just in time for ordering your compost for bulb planting, if you use the code pottingbench on plantgrow.co.uk, you'll get 10% off your order. Before we get into this week's episode, I'd like to ask, if you listen to this podcast and enjoy it, then please consider rating and leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice. It's easy to do, takes just a few minutes of your time, but it helps this podcast get into the ears of more like-minded planty people. It really does only take a few minutes and it's massively appreciated. So, in this week's episode, we're talking about, amongst other things, bees. We all know that we should be making our gardens into pollinator-friendly habitats, but why exactly and how easy is it? Thankfully, this week I'm joined by a true authority on all things bees, Dave Goulson. Dave is famous for his love of bees and his multiple books on the subject, including A Sting in the Tail, Bee Quest and, and Gardening for Bumblebees. Join me and Dave as we discuss our buzzy friends and so much more. Enjoy. So, for anyone who is not familiar with you right now, who are you and what do you do? (laughs) My name is Dave Goulson. I'm Professor of Biology at uh, the University of Sussex. And I specialise in studying bumblebees and more broadly insects and and uh, I guess I like to see myself as a bit of a champion of the insect world these days. So how did all this this kind of start because it seems as though I mean we're in you know we're in 2023 we're all I will say aware of the plight of the bumblebee I think we are to an, an extent perhaps but not perhaps to the extent that certainly not that that you are. How did this this all start for for you? So I don't, I don't, honestly don't really know. I mean, when I was just five, six years old, for some reason, I was interested in insects. And I, I you know, I've got these early memories of, of primary school, of, of filling my lunchbox after I'd eaten my sandwiches with, with caterpillars that I collected from the hedge and some weeds at the edge of the playground and whatnot. And I, I tried to rear them up. And I think you, most of them probably died because I didn't feed them the right leaves or whatever. But a few survived and turned into moths or butterflies and I thought that was amazing and uh and so I I I and you know I, I guess it's just been with me forever I didn't grow out of that childish enthusiasm but it was bum, bumblebees came later that was when I was in my late 20s and uh when I was I was working at university and just kind of doing research on insects and I stumbled into bumblebee I I so actually so I'll try not to go on too long in the but I Basically, I was sitting in the Itchin Valley Country Park, which is just uh, just north of Southampton. And uh, I I can't remember why I was there, but I was just idling. There was this big patch of comfrey and loads of bumblebees buzzing around on it. 
And I just noticed that there's something that seemed a bit odd, which is that if you watch, and anyone can see this in their back garden, if you've got a patch of flowers and a few bumblebees, if you watch a bee, it goes from flower to flower. But I noticed that they often fly up to a flower and then veer off as if there's something wrong with it. And I, I just wondered what that was. And I tried, I tried sort of reading to see if there was something in the kind of bee literature that would explain it. And I couldn't find anything. I ended up spending five years unraveling what, what was happening. And it turns out that they basically, as they approach a flower with their antennae out, they sniff it with their antennae and, and they're sniffing for the faint, smelly footprint of a recent bee having landed on that flower. And if they can if they can smell one, they know the flower is going to be empty because the previous bee will have taken the, the nectar and the pollen. So they don't bother wasting their time landing. Um, That's just, amazing. That was quite cool. And, yeah. uh, and that hadn't been written about, really. No, it was it was a sort of new discovery. Um, and, I, and I guess after that, I was sort of hooked and came to realise that actually they're really smart little critters. You know, they're, 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 they perform these amazing feats of navigation to and from between their, their nest and patches of flowers. And they learn which flowers are most rewarding and memorise landmarks and really complicated social lives and... So I just got drawn in and 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 uh, spent the last thirty years kind of trying to unravel the mysteries of the bumblebee. Gosh, I I think there's so much that you can talk about with with bees in particular. I had a fantastic conversation in an earlier season with um, Jean Vernon, who I'm I'm sure you know, um, yeah. who is obviously completely besotted with bees in a similar way. And I think there's a there's a lot to kind of unravel with with bees and I don't you know I don't necessarily know where to start but I think there's there's a lot of um there is a lot of chatter and we're all somewhat more aware of plants for pollinators etc that we've we've kind of mentioned at the start but it is it as simple as as that is it as simple as trying to find kind of plants for pollinators and planting more of those in your garden and encouraging more bees or is it is there are we doing enough I mean we're clearly not doing enough aren't we we're not doing enough. I mean, gardeners, some of them are, are doing their best and and gardening, you know, it's been an interesting few years. You know, it's it's definitely changing. The way, the way people are gardening is changing, but not all for the good. You know, there's on the, while, while there's a big sort of wildlife gardening movement, which is just gets stronger and stronger all the time. Yeah. It's like no mow may encouraging people not to mow and campaigns to not use pesticides in gardens and urban areas and all this kind of stuff which is fantastic. Um, and, and I mean, I guess, yeah, there's, there's, there's also sort of in parallel with that, there's this real interest in rewilding, mm. um, both at a kind of landscape scale, you know, big rewilding projects with thousands of acres like NEP in Sussex. Yeah. Um, uh, but also on a garden scale, you know, what, what can you, you obviously can't kind of abandon a garden, but you can kind of, you know, uh, relax and yeah. uh, let it uh, allow more things to happen naturally not not constantly fight it yeah um, and, and allow more native wildflowers and be less uptight about weeds and all this kind of stuff so that that is happening and it's really great but on the other hand there are there's you know there's a recent survey that eight percent of gardens now have some plastic grass yeah and, you know so there are some there's quite a portion of society that haven't engaged at all with with the idea of gardens as as nature reserves. Um, yeah. But uh, but just the big picture, um, if I can ramble on for a bit longer. Absolutely, no, be good is, for it. Uh, you know, gar I mean, gardens do cover a lot of land. There's, there's about 22 million 
gardens in the UK and collectively I think they cover it's it's nearly 500,000 hectares of land which is a lot and you know and so if 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 we can encourage people to make them more wildlife friendly that would be a you know a significant um step to help bumblebees and other creatures but the, the you know the bigger picture is that actually it's still only a pretty small proportion of Britain is garden um and yeah. Farming, unfortunately, um, has been a big driver of, of wildlife declines. Um, you know, the sort of industrialization, the switch to big scale monoculture cropping with lots of pesticide inputs and so on. Mm. Um, and, and, and so we also need to think about that, you know, how do we feed everybody, but in a way that's much more sustainable than we have done so far. Hmm. Uh, and unless unless something is done there you know 70 percent of britain is farmland so what we do in our gardens is good it makes a little bit of a difference but on its own isn't going to be enough 70 percent gosh that's yeah. incredible I, that that includes kind of extensive farming like you know grazing lands and hmm. so on. but yeah i mean it's it's by far the biggest land use so you know how we how we farm is kind of pretty pretty damned important when it comes to you know the fate of our environment really i i often wonder when it comes to um i suppose specifically plants for pollinators and kind of um like rewilding and all that kind of stuff i often wonder what what organizations like the rhs for example are, are doing to not necessarily themselves in their own spaces and their own gardens or that you know that's a, that, that's that's a that's a potential question but I think in terms of their responsibility as an organisation with a prolific voice to, I, to, I don't know, to, to promote, you know, plants for pollinators. And they did, didn't they have a, they had a, was it, it was perfect for pollinators. Didn't they have to change mm. that? <laughs> for anyone yeah. that can't, obviously can't see this, a, a grin came across Dave's face as I mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so I know why they changed it. Um, so uh, six years ago now, Crikey, time flies. 2017, we we did some research in my lab, um, looking at. Um, I always had this suspicion, you know, if you go to a garden centre and they have these, you know, beautiful plants on display, tempting you to spend your money, hmm. and uh, and I was always a bit suspicious. They they looked almost too good, you know, a bit a bit like the the, the perfect apples in the supermarket shelves. We know that they're drenched in pesticides to keep them perfect mm. and the, uh, so we tested flowers from garden centers for pesticides and we specifically we we toured around we visited all the big name garden centers in the southeast including you know things like b and q mm. um and we bought the plants with the ones that were had the rhs logo perfect for pollinators as it was at the time um uh, or sometimes they use other kind of bee and butterfly logos mm. um and we tested them for pesticides and, and long story short, they were riddled. Um, right. Some of them had, I mean, one, one little heather plant that we bought had, we detected 10 different pesticides in this little plant, you know. My gosh. Most of them didn't have quite that many, but 75% of them contained insecticides, which are, you know, designed to kill insects. And these yeah. are plants being sold by garden centers as you know intended to benefit wildlife and, and well you know well-intentioned people are buying these and and we have no idea of course why you know why would they that 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 they're likely to be accidentally poisoning 
the bees and butterflies in their garden. Yeah, of course. So there, there was a bit of a kind of, um, um, you know, we, we got a lot of media coverage when we published this research because mm. people were pretty shocked to, to hear about it. And uh, I was asked to go up for a meeting at uh, um, Wisley um, with the RHS. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, it was really interesting. And um, But I was saying to them, you know, that from my perspective, they could play a really important role in sorting this out. And uh, I, you know, I, I it, felt, it felt that the need needed to be some kind of certification scheme. If, if garden centres want to sell things as perfect for pollinators, they should be able to guarantee that they don't have insecticides in them at the very least, mm. um, it, it seemed to me. And so I was I tried to persuade RHS to to you know to because they could have done that. They they could do they it seemed to me, especially given that their logo was being used um on all of these plants, that they had some responsibility to do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so I I, I tried to persuade them to be kind of proactive and um and and left at the end of a, a however long meeting. Um and nothing really I didn't hear anything subsequently about it and then a couple of months later they changed the logo from perfect for pollinators to plants for pollinators and, and as far as i could tell that was basically it that was all they did and all they were doing was was admitting that the plants weren't perfect um and so but it doesn't doesn't help the bees and butterflies to change their wording of their of their signs of you know so. and it, it just seemed like sidestepping the issue rather than taking responsibility and i I mean, there are some really great people at the RHS and their their plants for pollinator list is a good list. I completely agree with what's on it. Um, and they are changing and becoming more, you know, moving into the 21st century. But it's been slow and there have been times when it's been really frustrating. And I felt they could show more leadership. Yeah. Um, and really, you know, push an environmental agenda along rather than sometimes feels like you're sort of having to drag them kicking and screaming, you know. Yeah. Did they, were they, when you went to them with that information, did they, were they aware of that already? That surely they must have known that those plants had that on? They must, I mean, uh, I think they, they surely had some idea. Um, I mean, you know, I guessed that those, I, I was pretty confident the plants would have been treated with something mm. um, before. That's what motivated us to do the research. And if I could work it out, you know, surely the RHS with all of their knowledge. Yeah. I, it is a tricky one because the, the these plants are usually um, reared abroad, imported, you know, in bulk um, from a lot of them are reared in the Netherlands in really intensive, huge uh, facilities. Mm. And so, it's, you know, there's no easy way. Of, you can you can ask the garden centre that's, you know, that's got the plants on sale, what pesticides are in this plant? And unless it's a small um, garden center rearing its own plants which is very rare these days they yeah. won't have a clue no, you know course. not not the foggiest idea and they don't know how to find out you know uh, because there's no there's no information attached to the plants as they're passed down the the, the supply chain um so so it would be a challenge to sort out but yeah, but you know if anyone could do it the rhs rhs could you'd think yeah, you would think so. So we kind of touched on the fact that we can we can all do more, and I think we all we all know that already. But I suppose for the average gardener, creating a garden for pollinators is is very much a theme for a lot of gardeners already. But are there are there common myths around what people might be doing to help, uh, and or what else 
the average gardener could do. So creating a wildlife garden, et cetera, and, you know, wildlife, uh, wildflower meadows, et cetera. But what are we, what are we either doing wrong or what could we, could we simply do better? Uh, well, there's one, there's one particular thing, which is, which is an issue in the bee world, which is that many people um, have taken up keeping bees um, because they've heard that bees are in decline and they mm. think that keeping bees is going to help. And and on very simplistically, I can see why they've come to that conclusion. Um, and and it's actually become really popular in cities in particular. Mm. There are something like 10,000 hives in central London. Um, yeah. And but the, 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 the reality is the honeybee is a domestic animal. It's a bit like me being, you know, so I'm really worried that the wild birds are declining. So I've started keeping chickens. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're completely, they're actually, they're not the same thing at all. The honeybee is not actually in decline. Many people, they've heard that bees are in trouble. So they think, and, and they think, well, actually, I think many people think there's just one species of bee. One type of bee, yeah. Um, How many are there, Dave? Let's, let's, let's... Well, in the world, about 25,000. Um, and we've got about 260 or so in the UK. Um, 25,000, that's incredible. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, there's some amazing bees out there, all sorts of weird and wonderful, colourful creatures. Um, and, and, but actually, many of them also rather small and drab and really easily overlooked, which is why mm. most people have no idea. You know, some of these, some of them are tiny little kind of blacky brown things. Um, and people just dismiss them as flies or, you know, have, just don't. Uh, why would they look that closely? You know, yeah. um, anyway, there's a lot of bees and it's the wild ones that are in trouble. You yeah. know, they don't have anyone to champion them. Beekeepers look after their bees and they split their colonies when you know to, to replace them if they die and so on hmm. anyway so so this this is not an issue that's relevant to many people but um if you, if you want to help bees basically don't take up beekeeping because actually it can be counterproductive right every hive is 60 or seventy thousand more bee mouths to feed and unless you can provide lots of flowers they're basically yeah. just going to compete with all the all the other pollinators for food yeah so anyway, that, so that's, but more broadly, the, the sort of, I think most of what is recommended in terms of wildlife gardening is pretty good, actually. You know, you know it's it, it, one of the things that perhaps is not appreciated as much as I would like it to be is the value of, of planting natives, you know, native wildflowers. We have the most beautiful selection of native wildflowers. Yeah, we do. And, and you know many of them look look fabulous in a in a even in a really neat if you know if you want a, an immaculate tidy weed free garden fine if that's what you want but you'll you could still grow some gorgeous native plants in your herbaceous beds and they will look beautiful i mean i'm thinking i don't know you know things, well actually some are some are already considered acceptable foxgloves everyone mm. no one has a problem with them growing in their garden because they're somehow accepted as both wildflowers and garden plants yeah most plants that grow in in you know in the fields and hedgerows and so on people think must be weeds if they find them in their garden and will grub them out yeah um but i i mean i even have ragwort growing in my flower beds and and I, that might sound awful to some people but it, it's really pretty yeah you know, it's uh it's it's a really attractive plant and it's great for for bees and butterflies and and so on um 
So, so yeah, encouraging people to grow more native plants and persuading garden centres to stock more native plants because you don't, you know, it's actually quite hard to get hold of them. Um, there are a few specialist companies that that sell them, but but not very many. Um, no, I think you you tend to see the the same kind of continual twenty or thirty plants, don't you? And at any given yeah. time, when you think how many different native species we have, it would be it'd be great if there was a little more on offer for. The gardens um, yeah, but other than that you know ponds are fantastic reducing mowing um is great the, it co- does cause a bit of confusion um because some people think the logical con- sort of extension of no mow may is not mowing at all ever yeah um, but actually you, you can't do that you know the 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 beautiful flowery meadows that that we're probably trying to recreate when we think of you know what we'd like our lawn to turn into yeah they're they're the result of of cutting and grazing yeah. um uh, uh obviously not as often as someone might cut a manicured lawn but at least once a year you do need to 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 cut and remove all the all the grass that you cut and yeah. that's a bit of a challenge because if you let it go too tall so tall that your mower won't go into it um then then you know people then get stuck and don't really know what to do and they end up with a sort of thatch of yeah long grass that's that's kind of (laughs) dies at the end of the season and it doesn't have any flowers and they're really disappointed and they wonder where (laughs) they went wrong Um, so yeah um it's not as easy as people think creating a wildflower meadow but otherwise you know growing some bee-friendly plants not using pesticides i mean i i'm a passionate organic gardener Mm. i i've got a you know a big garden it's about two acres um and I, I haven't used any pesticides here for the last 10 years and I honestly don't don't find I need them you know I mean I, I genuinely well no that's not quite true um I must admit there are times when I wish I I could use some roundup on the drive because mm. you know you get lots of little little seedlings popping up all over the place and they're a yeah. pain to hoe out yeah but the way I I Roundup, you know, the active ingredients glyphosate, it's a notorious chemical. It's, there's loads of evidence suggesting it's really bad for the environment and for us. Mm. Um, so I would urge people to, you know, there's always a, there is always an alternative. We managed without these chemicals before they were introduced mm. in the century. Yeah, um, exactly. So, and you know, why why would you want to use poison in your garden where your children play, where your dog plays, where you grow vegetables to eat, and so on? It just seems nuts to me it does i, I to- totally agree what what's what's one thing that we uh that we uh, i don't know is it is a myth um uh, about kind of growing for pollinators or um because i think we, we talk about colors um which may not be a may not be a myth but is, isn't there something about particular colors that, that bees either can see or can't see yeah so they their eyes are quite different to to ours and the the, the peak sensitivity of bee eyes is well there are three peaks um yellows purples and ultraviolet that we can't see at all Mm. um so and that that's why if you think about it most of the plants that are um recommended for attracting bees and 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 actually other insects too tend to be yellow or purple Mm. um and that's just simply because that's what bees see best so the plants have evolved the color of their petals to target the peak sensitivity of the bee's eyeball basically they don't have eyeballs but you know what i mean yeah um uh so so yeah um uh that's kind of something worth 
bearing in mind, I guess, when you're when you're picking flowers. But there's plenty of yellow and purple flowers to choose from. And, you know, they do. You, bees do visit white flowers and other, some of which are actually UV reflecting. And actually, I should explain more about, about the UV because it's it's beyond the edge of the spectrum that we can see. Um, uh, but it's often used by plants to there are patterns on on flowers that we can't see sometimes. Right. Um, and particularly, they often have um, ultraviolet um, nectar guides, little stripes on the petals that that kind of point to where the. Um, where the nectary in the flower is, which the, the bees use to find the centre of the flower more efficiently. Mm. Um, but also some some pale flowers are, are strongly UV reflectant, which is, um, so they don't look particularly exciting to us, but to a bee there, um, they look, presumably look fabulous. It's kind of weird to think that, you know, they can yeah, see it that? that we can't see. Yeah, know? it's it's so. bizarre. Are there any... Are there any colours that they particularly well? I mean, if you were to avoid a certain colour, what would be one to to avoid if you were if you were looking to create a kind of pollinator haven? Uh, I I honestly I don't think it really matters. But red red they can't see very well at all. Um, mm. So, I, but then there aren't, aren't that many naturally bright red flowers. There are a few, but yeah, yeah. they're they're pretty they're they're pretty adaptable. I don't think you need we need to worry too much about the colours <laughs> of that. No, no. Perhaps not. Let's t- let's talk a little bit about your your books. I I'm I, I can't keep track of how many books you've got, but the the majority of them, if not all, well, not all of them. Majority of them are, are, are bee related, aren't they? I think the latest was was that was that gardening for bumblebees. Uh, the most recent was Silent Earth, uh, which was twenty twenty one. That's right. Which is which is all about is is much broader. Um, I do mention bees, but it's. Uh, it's 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 about insects and um why they're so important uh, why why we sh- should be concerned that they're in decline um what's causing the declines and the middle of the book is somewhat depressing perhaps because it goes <laughs> through all the the many problems that bees and other insects face in the in the in the modern world with a, you know there's a chapter on pesticides and a chapter on habitat loss and then there's things like climate change and light pollution and invasive species and so on and so on it's all gets a bit dark and mm. laden um but then the the final third of the book is is about what we can do um you know uh, what we could and with sections for gardeners and for politicians and farmers and and everybody um, yeah. because we the, the i mean the nice thing actually with with bees and other insects um is is you know you can help yourself you can do something you know we can all get involved as unlike many of these you know big kind of cataclysmic environmental issues that people get so depressed about where yeah. you feel completely helpless about climate change and and uh, you know the rainforest being chopped down and and so on um whereas whereas insects you know that there there are literally thousands of species potentially in your back garden, um, and and even even if you just got a window box, a few bee friendly flowers, it's it's doing something. It's not you know a huge amount, but it's better than nothing, and it works. You know you put you put a a, plant, a nice flowering marjoram or lavender plant on a windowsill outside your house, mm. and I guarantee you within within minutes on a sunny day insects will start to arrive you know mm. that's just about, even in the middle of a city um 
and so yeah it's kind of i think it's empowering to you know to encourage people to actually get get their hands dirty and and start doing some things you know bring yeah. white flowers make a bee hotel loads of things you can do yeah um, so that anyway i'm that that's that's silent earth essentially uh, it's i'll uh, pop a link to that in the uh in the show notes for anyone that wants to wants to check that out um, there's some there's something that I always always think, and this may, it may be total nonsense, and I may come out looking like a, a complete idiot, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And if I'm going to ask anyone, I'm going to ask you. Every time I'm at Chelsea or Hampton Court or wherever wherever the shows may be, I, it suddenly strikes me that that for a brief period of time, I say brief, I know it, it lasts longer than than the few days that a show is kind of open, but take Chelsea for example. It's however many acres that suddenly has a plethora of plants in it that, that wouldn't normally be there the, the rest of the year round, whether it's just from the gardens or whether it's from the nursery selling the plants. There are thousands more plants there that are, you know, nine times out of ten are, are fantastic for pollinators. Does that in any way, or do you know, does that in any way confuse pollinators for that period of time that that's, that that's kind of on? I don't think it does because they're they're used to patches of flowers coming into flower and then disappearing. Um, yeah. you know, each each flower, each flat plant species might flower for for a couple of weeks, um, and so bees are really good, particularly bees, at learning where patches of flowers are and efficiently navigating their way back with their pollen and nectar to their nest. Hmm. But when that patch stops flowering they'll quickly find another patch mm. um, of, you know, and if need be, it may be a different species of plant that's come into flower mm. and they'll then learn the location of the patches of that flower. Um, so they're, 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 they're pretty flexible. You know, they're, they, they're not easily confused. They li- they've always lived in a, in a pretty challenging environment where they had to seek out the best flowers and, and, and the best flower changes from one day to the next. So yeah, of course. Um, it, it is always impressive, you know, as you say, when you go around these, um, you know, um, shows that have just been thrown up. I went to, to Hampton Court this year hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, there were, there, were, there were tons of bees and butterflies visiting the flowers. And, yeah. and as you say, there, there kind of been nothing there just a few weeks earlier. Um, so these must be ones that were coming from gardens, other kind of green spaces yeah. where there were flowers. Yeah. But when when this sudden glut of, of resources was was built for them, they they arrive. You know, they build them, will come. They do. Something else that's just just come into my brain that I don't know whether. Um... Well, I'm sure I'm sure you'll have thought about it, but the 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 increase in us talking about the um, is it the Asian hornet that's that's causing the problems? Yeah. What is that? What is that doing? And what I mean is that I mean, it clearly is making a difference. But what is what exactly is is that doing? Yeah. So it's an interesting story. It's a bit of a sad story, really. But um, so the Asian hornet is is a big wasp species. It's not as big as our native hornet, to be fair. Um, some, some of the stories suggest that it's some kind of giant, terrifying monster. It's, it's actually a little bit bigger than our common wasps, and, but smaller than our hornet. It comes from Asia, as you might guess from the name. It was accidentally um, brought in a shipping container full of pottery to France. I can't remember the exact year, but it was, it was something like 20-odd years ago. Right. Um, it became established in France and quickly spread. And it's now found more or less all over Western Europe. 
and and it reached the north coast of France, um, got to Calais in 2016 or thereabouts. And the trouble, the problem with it is it loves to eat honeybees in particular. I mean, it's, it's a voracious right. predator, as all wasps are, but it seems to have a real taste for honeybees. And if it finds a hive, it will just, and the, the wasp will just go backwards and forwards, arrives at the hive, kills a bee, chops its head off, flies back, feeds it to its nest, goes back to the hive, and it just goes backwards and forwards until there are no honeybees left. Oh, um, no. Uh, so French beekeepers have, you know, have found this is a real problem on you know their bees were harder struggling as it as it was in the modern world with all the sort of stresses like pesticides and lack of wildflowers and so on um mm. the last thing they need is 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 you know this sort of a new predator adding to their woes so british beekeepers have been desperately keen to stop them getting across the channel and defra um have a kind of a warning scheme if anyone cites one of these things they should report it um there's even a there's a mobile phone app that defra made for, for if you, asian mm-hmm. hornet if anyone thinks they've seen one and so the first ones were spotted in 2016 and they've been coming over in ones and twos most years since but this year um suddenly there, there was a there were 22 i think sightings mostly in kent and nine nests were found and destroyed the problem is you only really need to miss one or two nests and they'll produce hundreds of new queens and next year it'll be too late yeah. um and the the fear is that that's just happening basically right now right. this this sudden splurge in numbers if that's correct then next year and from here on forever we'll have asian hornets in britain once they're established you can't really you know there's nothing it's like harlequin ladybirds how, how are you going to get rid of them you know there'll be billions of them so yeah it's it's a bit worrying and they don't just eat honeybees although they do like honeybees they'll also eat my bumblebees and lots of other insects flies and so on so we don't really know what impact they'll have there but it's it's unfortunately it's not particularly good news for no. our for our wild insects gosh well we don't want to end the podcast there, do we? No, no, <laughs> end on the low there. Right, let's let's talk about your garden, Dave, because um, we've not we've not talked about your garden at all. Um, we can do this with the the use of three questions that I'm I'm asking every guest on uh, on this season, um, so which will give us a bit of a, a little bit of an insight into your your garden. I think. Um, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, brilliant. <laughs> If you were to start your own garden again from scratch, where would you start and what would you do differently? Uh, I'd, I'd plant more trees earlier, I think. I, I love trees. Um, I, I mostly plant either fruit trees or native trees. Mm. And, and But they, they're so, you know, they take so long. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's an old proverb if, that the best the, the, the best time to plant a tree was was 20 years ago and the next best time to plant a tree is today. But yeah, so so that, that getting that kind of structure and you know because they, they support so much life, you know, yeah. one oak tree if you're lucky enough to have room for an oak tree, um, will will support something like 400 species of insect, um, and and then all the birds that eat the insects and and so on and so on. So yeah, that that sorry, it's a long answer. More no, that's great. I think you're right though. I think there's something about uh, trees are always something that I think when I look at our garden, we we bought I bought a new cherry blossom 
I don't know, perhaps five years ago. And I remember planting it thinking, and then it blossomed the first year. And I remember thinking, well, this is a bit bit of a letdown. But then, of course, three, four, five years down the line, that's it's a totally different story. But it's because a tree doesn't, to, to a certain extent, doesn't give you the instant gratification that you want from something in your garden, is it? That's that's the problem. No, it's, it's, I guess we're not very patient creatures. <laughs> no. We expect everything, bang, 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 you know, click of your phone, yeah. deliver tomorrow or whatever. And yeah. the whole concept of waiting decades doesn't, doesn't <laughs> ludicrous lifestyle does it no it doesn't no wonderful think about your garden again what is your favorite scent in your garden and why oh this is a bit obvious but i know I, 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 actually i was gonna say i was gonna say the honeysuckle i've got a lovely honeysuckle by oh, the front yeah. that uh that, that attracts moths at night and uh honeysuckle is a great plant for for, for wildlife but actually, funnily enough, I think if I'm honest, it's it's the smell of the quince. I've got a few quince trees mm. and I really love when they're ripe. It's not a particularly strong smell, but there's something, I don't know, I just, it's very... It's subtle, isn't it? But it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I sit, I, I, we always sit a few ripe ones on, on a bowl on the kitchen table in the autumn. And the kitchen just sort of slowly gets permeated by this kind of kind of lovely, rich, but sort of faint yeah fruity smell i can't describe how do you describe a smell God, i don't i wouldn't eat, I, no i think you've, you've done as much as i could do it's tough to explain isn't it anyway yeah quince, quince. I, I, and they, they're of course they're lovely fruits to to, to 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 eat if you cook them with and make mm. a mix with some apples they make the most fantastic crumble quince i think that's the first time anyone's ever said that you're a first good to be original <laughs> yeah of course lovely and the last question why do gardens bring you so much joy I, I guess there are lots of lots of aspects to to the joy of gardening, but for for me, I I, I guess it's because you never quite know what you're going to see. I mean, it, but perhaps I'm looking. It's you know I've got a bigish garden, well two acres, um, but almost every time I go to walk around the garden, I I, I see something new. You know, it might be a a, a new insect or. Um, something sprouting, which I, you know, no idea where it's come from, just floated in on the seed. This this spring, I, I had my first native orchid came up, and completely of its own nice. volition, and I was so excited. You know, it was just, it was just a common spotted orchid. There are loads of them around the the road verges around here, but I'd never had one in my garden. And, uh, and in fact, I mean, I, I actually almost chopped it down. I, I it was just at the last second I saw <laughs> the spotty leaves and stopped in time. But I, I I spent about a week being really excited by that, and uh, uh, yeah, it's, I guess it's the, it's it's the you know never knowing what you're going to see next. If you'd like to find out more from Dave, then you can follow him on Instagram at dave.goulson or on Twitter at davegoulson. All of Dave's incredible books are available in all good bookshops. Join me again next week where I'll be in conversation with another fantastic planty guest. Until then, you can follow me on Instagram at viewfromthepottingbench to see what I'm up to in my garden or visit viewfromthepottingbench.com to read my blog and much more. See you again next week.